0: We're going to spend 15 or so minutes on two frameworks that will leave you much better equipped to solve your customers' problems today than you were yesterday. I had a conversation a couple of weeks ago that spurred this episode. A friend of mine is successful in all sorts of ways. He runs a small, highly profitable company and a niche he's endlessly interested in that his customers love. He charges a lot and he gives his customers way more value than they pay for. He's curious about everything, but disciplined about what he pursues and how he does it. He doesn't make a lot of promises, but when he does, they're ambitious and he over delivers on them. He is like the human embodiment of fewer, better things. I had a beer with him and another one of our friends the other day. This other friend is a pleaser. He's great. If you ever make a huge mistake in your marriage or something and need someone to tell you that the thing that you clearly did wrong was actually somehow the other person's fault, he's your guy. Everyone needs that friend. Anyway, the three of us were talking about startups, obviously, and the pleaser friend mentioned he was considering joining a pre-product startup that sold organic, fair trade clothes for toddlers. He was interested because they'd gotten a bunch of traction on social media. There was buzz, and people were liking and sharing their posts, and the design seemed great, and they were on podcasts, and they were getting in front of their audience all before they'd sold a dollar worth of stuff. There was momentum, he said. They'd grown an email list and were opening up pre-orders soon. He would join as a jack-of-all-trades, focused on marketing, but also on whatever needed doing. My other friend jumped in. Aren't retailers flooded with inventory right now? Seems like a tough time to launch a luxury product. What makes these baby clothes so much different than what's already out there? My pleaser friend shook it off a bit. It's definitely a crowded space, he said, but that's a good thing. Lots of people are buying lots of things. If I had to pick a differentiator, it's the organic fair trade part, but also it's the brand, the style. People really like it. It's just hard to kind of put your finger on my successful friend. Didn't hesitate. Sure. But seriously, have you looked at retailer inventory across the country? Inventory is up 13% year over year. Retailers are drowning in stuff. They bulk ordered when supply chain logistics were awful and consumers were flush and now supply chains have caught up. Companies are literally opening up warehouses just to store all their excess stuff. Plus with layoffs and inflation, people just have less money. Did you know that real hourly compensation had the biggest year over year decline last quarter since 1948? The next six months are going to be markdown city and customers are going to be on the scent. It's going to be tough to sell stuff at full price in the near future. The question I think you need an answer to before you consider joining this company is, will people willingly overpay for this product? Is it so useful that in a world of familiar brands with 40% off sales, people are going to pay a premium for something new? Because next to all the sales and markdowns, that's what your product's going to look like. And if you just play the 40% off game from day one, it's going to be tough to go back to a higher price. So who happily, willingly is overpaying for this and why? My pleaser friend took a gulp of beer and then a bit defensively said, well, the, the, the TikToks, they're growing and shit. Another few seconds passed and he repeated his new insight. Shit. He shook his head. Well, um, I guess that's out. You guys hear about Elon? We quickly shifted topics and talked about that jackass for a bit, but the point had been made. I make this podcast because there's a ton of stuff out there that's unhelpful and maybe makes you feel good to be a part of the startup process, whatever that is, but it isn't actually serving you. There's a lot of rearranging patio furniture and not a lot of pouring concrete. My successful buddy pours concrete for a living. That is what he does. He is useful and helpful and sometimes harsh. And he's a great reminder to recognize fluff because service is the real goal building things that dramatically improve people's lives to an extent that they would happily, willingly overpay for them. Because whatever you built is that meaningful to their lives. Anything else is a waste of your time and your customers. Whatever you're building, would your customer happily overpay for it? When money gets tight, is it on the definitely cut, maybe cut, or essential, never cut list? Today, we're going to talk through a couple of frameworks that'll help you pour concrete. Practices that'll ensure you're building something that's different and useful and matters. Something people will overpay for. And we'll do it with a little help from a baseball factory in San Diego, Nutrisystem, and Krispy Kreme donuts. And we'll do it after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at GetTackleBox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Inversion. There's a baseball academy in San Diego that churns out incredible young hitters. Over the past couple of years, they've helped a highly disproportionate number of local high school players get college scholarships. I found out about this academy through a podcast listener who thought I'd find it interesting. They thought right. They sent a video of a local news interview with the owner of the academy. The story starts with the interviewer and the owner pacing around the facility as everyone around them does what kind of looks like normal baseball stuff. Then they get to a row of batting cages. If you aren't familiar, batting cages are usually mesh enclosures where there's a pitching machine and a batter, and the batter can hit 50 or 100 or 200 balls without needing a pitcher or people to retrieve the balls they hit. It's an efficient way to practice hitting. About 10 of these batting cages were lined up side by side, pitches whizzing by as expectant batters stood at the plate, except no one was swinging. As someone who grew up around batting cages, this was eerie. There was no clinging of metal bats on balls. There was just a repetitive thud as balls hit a thick mat behind the plate over and over. The thuds came fast and furious. It seemed like a new pitch was being thrown every two seconds. Thud, 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 thud. The interviewer clearly knew about these cages and excitedly commented, Here are the famous no-bat batting cages. Tell me about them. Well, the owner started... When we started training players way back before we had a facility, we did a thought exercise. We wanted to help our players get to the next level, but we knew lots of other people were trying to do that too. How could we do it in a way better way than they were? We started out not by thinking about what would make a great hitter, but by thinking about what would guarantee a hitter would be terrible. What are the qualities of an absolutely awful hitter? We listed them out. Bad timing, bad swing path, no power, no hand-eye coordination. If you go to any baseball training facility in America, they're great at helping you with those things. Timing, swing, power, even coordination. If we tried to tackle any of those, we'd be offering incremental gains. But while we were doing the exercise, we realized there was another thing that would make a hitter terrible. One that made every other quality irrelevant. If they couldn't recognize pitches. If they thought a fastball was coming, but it was a curve, they were screwed. If you can't recognize pitches fast, you've got no chance, no matter how strong or fast your bat is. And no one was building programs around that specific foundational skill, so we did. One of our first attempts at this was to set up a pitching machine that threw fastballs, sliders, curveballs, and changeups, And we gave our kids buzzers with four buttons on them, one for each pitch. The point was to click which type of pitch you saw as fast as possible. Swinging wasn't the point, and that's tiring, so we didn't even have them swing. We'd show them 200, 300, 500 pitches in a row, getting their eyes used to seeing tons of pitches, multiples more than anyone else sees. They get way better at recognizing pitches in a session or two. No one else does this. So getting a kid to watch a thousand pitches in a few days was transformational. It translated to better hitting in games almost immediately. It turns out if you can recognize the pitch, you've got a way higher chance of hitting it. And since no one is really doing this, our players had a massive advantage. We've built out a number of training tools that help players recognize pitches now, get reps in so that they can slow down the game, and it works. Inversion is a cement technique, a foundational way to help you get a differentiated strategy, a way to get far from iterative progress. The baseball trainer was doing it beautifully without even trying. Inversion is simple. Instead of trying to think of all the ways you'll help your customers succeed, start by figuring out what's guaranteed to make them fail. Then see where there's opportunity. I saw a story on Krispy Kreme recently. During the early days, they did something similar. They said, How would we ensure our donuts would be bad or no better than any other donut? The answer was for them to be stale. Another question they asked was, How can we ensure our business won't grow? One of the answers was relying on just donut shops for sales. They knew that the vast majority of donuts were purchased from a grocery store when people were food shopping already. The inverse of this was fresh, hot donuts in grocery stores. But how? Their strategy was born. They started putting bakeries, the places where they baked the donuts, close to grocery stores. They'd deliver their donuts fresh daily. You've probably even noticed this. Krispy Kremes are often fresh and still warm on the shelves of your local grocery store, which always seems odd. I remember thinking, why are the Krispy creams fresh We're in a grocery store? But they were and they were the only ones that were, and you'd have to be crazy to buy a different donut. This doesn't just work with established companies, but I liked both of these examples. Here is how I'd use it with a startup idea. If you're building an app that helps elderly people with loneliness, what would a terrible app look like? It'd be hard to use, of course, with small words and passwords to get in and have a lot of unfamiliar stuff. If you're building B2B software for sales teams to sell more, how could you make sure you didn't increase sales? If it didn't fit in their workflow, it didn't get them competitive, it wouldn't track easily, it had a confusing dashboard, and on and on. Start with inversion, and you'll understand the problems that you really get value from solving. For marketing and landing pages, I use inversion but tweak it a bit. Before I draft a new landing page for Tacklebox, I always do an inverse landing page one that wouldn't get anyone's attention, one that would blend in completely. Then I make sure to do the opposite with the real page. I cannot tell you how useful this is. If you have an idea you're working on, I implore you to sketch out a landing page for it that everyone would ignore. This works outside of the startup world too. Lots of tech people are finding themselves unemployed right now. I'm certain that some of you listening to this were part of the meta or Twitter or Amazon layoffs. I'm sorry. As you figure out your next steps, think about what an awful decision for your next job would look like. The first step is understanding the risk of a job. In my opinion, the real long-term risk for anyone is that they don't have a differentiated skill set. They don't have a unique, desirable perspective. So worst case might actually be finding the same sort of job you just had. And the flip would be to find something that, when paired with your existing experience, makes you indispensable in certain situations you want to be in that amplifies your existing skill set. For example, if you were a PM at Meta, why not figure out a way to apply those skills to a totally different industry you're interested in? Maybe go to a restaurant group or a school or a creative agency or a furniture designer. Then you're a product manager who also understands X industry. When a startup pops up in that space, you know who they're going to want to hire? You. Whatever problem you're solving, invert it. Figure out the real risks, then solve for them. Inversion leads to differentiation, which is the whole game. And it brings us nicely into the next tactic, which will actually help you sell the differentiated thing, the before and after pick. Before and after. I worked in finance for a few years right out of college, which I always recommend people do because it gets you serious about working hard and details and vests and also usually makes it clear that you want nothing to do with that type of life, so then you shoot off towards what you're actually interested in. Anyway, one of the first stocks I covered was Nutrisystem. At the time, it was a monthly subscription of frozen meals that cost like 275 bucks a month. The idea was you ate those and only those and you lost weight. The business was very straightforward. First, it worked. If you ate only what they sent you, you'd lose weight, even if you didn't exercise or change any other part of your lifestyle. The portion size and calorie and nutritional makeup basically guaranteed it. And second, that change was temporary. The second you stopped your Nutrisystem, it stopped working. There were no benefits that lasted past the program. And everyone was kind of on board with that. They didn't expect the benefits to continue. So customers would do it for a few months or however long they could stand eating penny Alfredo with chicken in an eight ounce yogurt cup for dinner. And then they'd quit. And then a few months later, they'd start again. I remember listening in on an earnings call. Once the company was public then, and they got talking about marketing or growth or something. And they mentioned that since they had improved supply chains, they'd be able to push more of their before and after television ads. After the call, I asked my boss what that meant. What did supply chain have to do with marketing strategy, and do they normally call out specific ad campaigns on these sorts of things? He'd been covering the stock for years, and matter-of-factly said that when they ran simple before and after ads on television at a certain time slot, basically pictures of people before and after Nutrisystem, they got avalanches of orders. The supply chain needed to be primed before they even considered putting those ads up. They had a faucet, and they could turn it on or turn it off. We've helped nearly 500 startups of marketing at this point, and there is no stronger tactic than the before and after pick. Not literally a pick, though that's easy to visualize as an example, but the here's where you are now, here's where we're going to get you method. This sounds simple, but it's actually really hard for two reasons. First, you've got to know how to describe the before and after. And second, to describe that before and after well, you need to be specific about who you're describing, who your customer is. The less specific the before and after message, the less compelling. As I wait in a combination of excitement and abject terror for my baby boy to come in December, I started to see some of these products and pain points that have incredible before and after messaging that parents happily overpay for. One jumps directly to mind. We have been recommended one lady no less than five times. She teaches you how to sleep train your kid. The program promises 12 hours of sleep a night for your kid by the time they're 12 weeks old. The cost of this woman to teach you her program is a number I'm uncomfortable even saying out loud, and I truly hope I never have to pay. And everyone says it's wildly expensive, but everyone also says it's underpriced. Before, your kid didn't sleep through the night. Which means you didn't sleep, which means you were cranky, your work suffered, your health suffered, you got sick more. After a couple of nights with less than five hours of sleep, your immune system dropped 60%, and you generally just didn't enjoy being a new parent, which is sad. After your kids slept, you could sleep. You could enjoy the early years with a clear head the way you were supposed to. Before and after. There's a quote I love by Warren Buffett that goes Only when the tide goes out do you discover who's been swimming naked. And I feel a bit like that with this exercise. When I ask people to take out a big sheet of paper and describe their customer before and their customer after their product, it becomes clear who's actually making a real change in their customer's lives and who has been swimming naked. This usually just becomes a useful exercise in customer segmentation. To transform someone, you need to know a lot about them, which means you usually need a tighter focus. Getting as small as possible until you can make a meaningful change for someone is the place to start. Without that, you've got nothing. So what's your version of the before and after pick and who are you choosing to help get there? In any economy, at any price point, people will happily pay to buy a better version of themselves. Figure out how to build a product that does that through inversion, then figure out how to market that value with the before and after system. Build something people will happily overpay for. Anything else is a waste of everyone's time. And If any of you know a cheaper way to get a kid to sleep 12 hours a night, please, I'm all ears. I'm pre-stressed about this. I'm not sleeping already. Ugh. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you need help turning your idea into a startup, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We respond in 72 hours and can be working on your idea by the weekend. And if you like the pod, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It is super helpful. Have a great week.